Congregation, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4. Colossians, chapter 4. We'll be just reading two verses this morning, which will also be our text, verses 5 and 6. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, where Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our song of preparation is Psalm 87, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. to congregation, I invite you to or encourage you to keep your Bibles open to, to uh, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 this morning as we look at this passage and hear what the Lord has to say to us, His people. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in this section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and if we, we were familiar with this letter, we know that the, in the beginning there's a lot of theology, there's a lot of correcting of, of false views about who Jesus is and, and what salvation is and what, uh, uh, what, uh, how we must respond to it properly so that uh, to counteract the false teachers and the false teachings that existed at that time that were infiltrating the, f- 
uh, the early church. But in this, in this section, as you approach chapter 3, chapter 4, uh, you begin to look at some practical implications as to what Christians confess about our response to the salvation that God has bestowed upon us. You look at things like personal change. How is this supposed to affect you? You look at changes in your relationships. What is the, uh, what is the marriage relationship look like as far as Christians in a home? Uh, the parental relationship, the employer-employee relationship. And uh, just before this section here, Paul uh, points us to prayer and the need for prayer in the Christian life uh, for the work of the ministry. But this morning, Paul takes us into a, a journey of looking externally, we might say, looking uh, about us. And, and to rem he reminds us here, and he calls us to remember that just as we have been saved by God's grace, there are many who are still outside, and that's the word he uses in our passage, those who are still outside the Christian church and outside of God's grace uh, who need to hear the gospel. Now, in the original context, when Paul writes this, uh, those outside, when he uses these kinds of words, the, the Christians then would have been thinking about perhaps the Jews who were hostile to Christianity for religious reasons. They saw Christianity as something of a challenge to the uh, authentic uh, ancient teachings of the Jewish religion. Uh, the uh, original Christians would have been thinking of the Romans who ruled them, uh, who were uh, hostile toward them for political reasons, and they would have been thinking of their fellow citizens who were, at the very least, skeptical. At the most, they were scornful about the teachings of Christ. But of course, again, all need Christ. And Paul reminds the Colossians, and in effect us, that all Christians have an obligation, a duty, toward those who are still outside of God's grace. And that obligation is to proclaim and to live out the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus alone, in the hope that all may be saved. Now, in our time, in our context, we would think of those outside as um, all unbelievers, including people who are the self-professed atheists, those who say there is no God, I don't believe in God, just suppressing the truth by their own unrighteousness, of course. We would think of adherence to other religions, those who could care less about religion, and those who work very vigorously and ferociously even against Christianity. Today, in our context, those are the ones we would perhaps think of first and foremost as we think of those who are still outside. We could also include those who have, those who we know, perhaps we love, who have abandoned their Christian upbringing and walked away from the faith, those who still go to a church, but their thinking has become very shallow and they are quite willing to water down the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Oh, and of course, we would think of our unchurched neighbors, acquaintances, those who live around us, those whom we work with, those who we go to school with, perhaps. And, and the thing to remember as we examine these verses is that these people in our day and age, the outsiders, those, the unchurched, the thing to remember is that not everyone we come into contact with is receptive to the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. No one 
I don't think we might be able to put our hands up and say, yeah, me, me, uh, um, I've had this experience where people actually would walk up to you on the street and say, oh, I hear you go to such and such church. I, I see you uh, getting, up and, uh, getting up and getting dressed on a Sunday. Obviously, you're going to church. You're one of those Christians. Can you tell me about Jesus? Can you teach me about Jesus? Nobody's doing that. Nobody's walking up to you uh, on the street and saying that. No one is saying, you know, coming to you in desperation. I want to be saved. I've heard about this salvation thing. Tell me about it. In our day, in fact... If you bring up Christianity, you can almost hear the internal groan and you can see the rolling back of the eyes as you begin to speak about Jesus. Rarely will we encounter someone who is hungering and thirsting to hear the old, old story, which makes what we hear this morning all that more important. Because our calling as Christians, and this text reminds us of this, is not just to ignore the unbelievers then, saying, okay, well, nobody wants to hear it, everybody's hostile to it, so let's just ignore them. It's not to keep the message to ourselves, because we don't want to be embarrassed in public by bringing up such a conversation. We certainly don't want to become, and it can easily happen, become the frozen chosen, or the holy huddle, or however you want to put that. Because Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations. We hear in the Bible that we are always to be ready to give an answer to those who ask about our hope. We hear that we are called in this world to be salt and light, cities on a hill. Certainly we exist as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Our calling is to worship our God, to delight in Him. But we are also a people belonging to God, as Peter writes, that we might declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. We even confess it in our Nicene Creed that we, are, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Boys and girls, what does that word mean? Apostolic. Well, the word apostle comes from the Greek word meaning sent, someone sent. And so when we say that the church is a, a holy apostolic church, we mean that we are the sent ones. Christ sends us today. We confess this about ourselves every time we confess the Nicene Creed. Having received the gospel, we understand that we are now called to be ambassadors for Christ, His sent ones. And so the church on earth must be, we must have this understanding of ourselves that we are all to be evangelistic. We're to be the aroma of Christ wherever we are. We are to be His visible representatives of His love and of His faithfulness. We're called to be lights on a hill, indeed, the light of the world. We're called, to be we're called to shine like lights in this crooked and depraved generation. And so, to be a member of a church or to be a member of the church is not the be-all and end-all for us. Church membership calls us to present sinners with the good news of Christ as His hands and feet and voice. Through the church, the king gathers his subjects. Using the church as his instruments, he uh, continues to protect and preserve and build a people chosen for eternal life. And so the church is never to deteriorate into some kind of a social club where we become just comfortable with each other and we're quite happy to continue with just each other 
and we would be quite content if there were no strangers joining our ranks to maybe raise too many questions about what we believe and having to explain ourselves or whatever. The church is never to deteriorate into such a social club, and it's certainly never to become stagnant. We think about stagnant water in a pond, boys and girls. It's not moving. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's dead. And eventually it begins to stink, doesn't it? The church is never to become like that. The church is to be a body of believers seeking to grow in faith, certainly, but also in number. The gospel of salvation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not our little secret that we have to keep to ourselves. The last words of Jesus to the church recorded in Acts 1 verse 8 was that, he would be, that we would be His witnesses. And, and listen to the language he uses there to the disciples. He says, um, you, you are going to be my disciples to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This tells us that the kingdom of heaven is to be expanding. The gospel is to be preached to all peoples. We even sang that in Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is that beautiful psalm that speaks of God's plan to bring in nations who were hostile to Him, who were considered enemies of Him at that time. And that's what He's doing today in Christ Jesus. The task of the church then, second only to the worship of God, is to make disciples. And to remember that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that all should turn to Him and live. Well, in light of this, this understanding, Paul reminds us that our conduct and our speech are to leave no room for criticism by those outside. Instead, he says, we are to be making the best use of the time. Literally, it says in the Greek, we are to be redeeming the time. And to redeem boys and girls means to, to buy back something. Something is sold, we are to redeem it, we are to buy it back. Uh, and, and, and the word uh, translated redeeming in the Greek here pictures buying up uh, like in a marketplace, in, a, in an intense, frenzied way. It's like when COVID hit originally, and we heard about the toilet paper apocalypse, remember that? And people were rushing to Costco, and they were buying up all the rolls of toilet paper on the shelves in a frenzied way, and they were thinking that there's, only, there's so little time we need to do this before the toilet paper runs out, and so we better grab as much as we can. Well, keep that picture in mind as you think about Paul's words here. Paul's point is that our time is limited in these last days. We cannot waste a single moment. These last days will be over in the twinkling of an eye. And so we cannot waste opportunities or blow opportunities for evangelism by letting our walk be inconsistent with our talk. There's too much at stake. Human souls are in peril. And because there is so little time... These last days are to be used to their fullest. And it starts with us being reminded of this, believing this, being convicted of this. It starts with us possessing a burden. And this is something we need to be praying about. And as we study the Bible, this becomes more and more a part of our thinking. It starts with that, it starts with that heartfelt concern for those who are still outside the kingdom. In us must live a burning desire that God's kingdom would be furthered and expanded by the bringing in of more and more sinners. 
Let me ask you something this morning. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus' uh, salvation is the only hope for sinners? That the only way that many will escape eternal damnation in hell is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? Because it starts with us, right? And if we honestly examine our hearts this morning, and we say, you know, maybe the world has influenced me too much, maybe it's the stuff I read, maybe it's my life, whatever, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I'm convinced about, uh, about that. Then that's the problem. That's the problem there. Then that's the first thing we need to work on. We need first to be convinced that I believe this. Because if I believe it, then I will begin to see that this has implications for others as well. I need to live and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And if you say, well, maybe I, I, I don't believe it as much as I do. I'll ask you this question. Well, what are you doing about it? Are you just content to let the days go by, let the chips fall where they may, and I'm sure it'll fall into place. I'm sure it'll be okay someday, sometime. Things will come together. Or are you praying? Are you seeking the Lord's help? Are you reading your Bible? Are you growing in your relationship with the Lord? Because the more we love the Lord, the more we'll begin to love sinners as well and be burdened for their salvation. And you see, it's so important because the last thing the church needs today, and if you think about the world that we live in, which is so anti-Christian, post-Christian, some call it, the last thing the church needs today is that its people live carelessly, as if we don't care what people think of us. And here's one of the reasons for that. The message that we bring to the world is what? As a Christian, we, we, we say, because I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm a changed person. I'm not who I used to be. I have experienced transformation. The acts of the old sinful nature that I was born with, things like anger and immorality and slander and vengefulness, hatred and filthy language, these things are being cast off from me more and more. I'm putting them off by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the clothing of the new nature of Christ is being put on more and more. And so I'm growing in humility and patience and compassion and gentleness and all these wonderful characteristics of Christ. That's what we tell the world. But they must see it as well. And that's why Paul says here, we have to strive to walk in wisdom before outsiders. Now, in the Bible, quite often, the word walk refers to how we live, how we conduct ourselves. And so what this is saying is that we must be wise as we come into contact with those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we are not, and if we're not conscious that we have to be wise around uh, those who don't believe in Jesus, we risk driving them away instead of drawing them closer to Jesus. Wisdom then dictates that what we confess must be seen in our lives. Those outside, those who do not know Christ, those the Lord might bring through our doors unbelieving family members, people we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, must see that we are what we confess, all of us. 
being wise to what those who are not of the household of faith is our corporate duty. This is a, a command that comes to all of us. Each of us has the responsibility to show our neighbor that the love of Christ is not just something we talk about, but something we all strive to live from the oldest here to the youngest. Boys and girls, perhaps as you listen to this this morning, you're thinking, what, what does this even have to do with me? You know, they, they, they're using all these big words again, evangelism. That's a grown-up word. That has nothing to do with me. It does. It does, boys and girls. We need to know this word. We need, uh, this is a command that God gives to us as well. Well, how does this apply to you? Well, think of a situation where, for, for instance, a family comes to church to visit, maybe, and they have children your age. Well, what's your responsibility? To stare at them and look at them as if they're aliens? What are you doing here? We don't want you people here. Is that, that what we're called to do, boys and girls? No. We have to smile at them, maybe even go up to them and say, hey, welcome, nice to have you with us. At the church, we go and we play in the playground. You want to come with us? Whatever it is you, you do here. There are children in your neighborhood, boys and girls. Your responsibility to what them, as young Christians, as covenant children, is to watch your behavior around them, your language, your attitude. And, and, and you need to be setting an example to those around you who don't go to church. You need to be setting an example of what respecting your parents looks like so that those who do not go to church will say, wow, that's different. You leave them surprised and amazed at how much they love and respect their, their, their parents because the unbelieving children may not think that way. What about our young people? Do you think this applies to you? Of course it does. You know, think about, about t- teenagers in general. You're at the stage where you're very self-conscious and you're perhaps questioning a lot of the things that you have been taught, whether it's true or not. Well, the other teenagers that you may have uh, contact with, whether they come in here or in your neighborhoods, whatever, they're, they're the same way too. They're thinking of the same things and they're self-conscious and feeling awkward in the same way. And so we have to stand out and we have to stand apart in our behavior, in our choices. We have to set the example for them. We have to be polite and loving and forgiving and courteous. We have to obey laws and rules in such a way that non-churched kids would, would be left impressed or at the very least surprised and amazed. The opposite is what? And this is how a lot of Christian young people get caught up, right? We try to be like them. We try to adopt their ways. We try to listen to their music and dress like them and behave like them because we want them to think, well, we're cool too. Just because my parents drag me to church every Sunday doesn't mean I'm not cool, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how we are to behave toward outsiders. This goes for every age group among us. We have to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders. Not, not because we're interested in numbers. Don't get me wrong. Not because we want to earn points with God or impress anybody. We do this 
And we have to see this and be deeply convicted of it because we care about souls. And because we realize that speaking of the love of Christ must be accompanied by the showing of the love of Christ for that speaking to have the effect on the observers or the hearers. And so for us older ones as well, we have to be careful how we work, how we do business, how we behave in public. As a congregation, we have to be very careful about how we conduct ourselves and how outsiders view us. Now, years ago, I, I had contact with a congregation, and, and this congregation had the reputation in the town of being, this is what they were called, it was a Dutch Reformed congregation, they were called the Smoking and Drinking Church. Isn't that wonderful? Who wants to have a reputation like that? People in the neighborhood actually thought that people who went to that church, they were party people. They partied hardy, they worked hard, they played hard, they had that really bad reputation. Not good, not good. Or, or think of all of us, how, what do our neighbors think of us? As far as our day-to-day -day relationships with them, you know, all they know of us, perhaps, perish the thought, but all that they know of us is that we, every Sunday we dress up and we back out of our garage and we go off somewhere. And they've heard that, yeah, they, those people go to church. But we've never said hello to them. We've never given them the time of day. We've never reached out to them. We've never taken the time to know them. And we basically give the impression that we don't really care to know them. Is that how we are to live as God's people in this world? Imagine people thinking of us as hypocrites because they've heard from people that, you know, those Christians, those Bible-believing people who go to church, they're, they're warm and loving and they're kind and gentle people. But then we give off the vibe of coldness, pride or haughtiness. Well, you can imagine the next time someone walks up to such a person and they hand them a pamphlet about Jesus or they invite them to church, you can imagine the reaction. They're going to just roll their eyes and say, yeah, right. I don't want to be one of those. And so it's so important that our walk be consistent with our talk. That's Paul's point here in these instructions. He's reminding us of the importance of discretion in our dealings with non-Christians because the time is short. There are souls to be saved. We don't have the luxury, folks of living carelessly. We have to consider what might offend our neighbor or cause them to question the love of Christ. And one of the most important ways we can do this is in our conversations. He says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that each of you may know how to answer each person. And so he says here that our words are to be gracious. The word gracious means to be uh, it's a mixture of, of being merciful and loving to someone who does not deserve it. We have to have that caring attitude to those we come in contact to, uh, with, and our words have to reflect that. The, the bottom line of all of this, and there's a lot we can say about that, but the bottom line is that if we're striving for our words to be gracious, we have to understand that that can only happen if our tongues are controlled by the Holy Spirit of Christ. We can, we can say a lot about striving to use the right words, and we'll, we'll talk about that too, but remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10. 
that we will be given the words to speak because the Spirit will speak in us. He will give us the words to speak. And so when we talk about, when Paul says here, let your words be gracious, take away with you, I need to be speaking in dependence upon Christ's Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit alone who can enable us to speak graciously with patience and compassion as we communicate with fellow sinners so that our speech will be humble and loving. And it's not only how or what we say, but how we say it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15 that we are to be prepared to answer everyone who asks about our hope, but then he quickly adds, but do this with gentleness and respect. This too is a product of the Spirit's work in us. Paul says it this way as well in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so God's servants, that's us, are called to gentleness of speech. We are, we're called to patience with the questions, the doubts, the challenges, maybe even the criticisms of those who do not know Jesus. We, we can't be, and especially in this day and age, we can't be like the proverbial bull in the china shop when, we, when it comes to evangelism. If we care about souls, we will be praying that the Holy Spirit of Christ would give us clarity of thought and speech. We will be praying for gentleness and that our speech would be seasoned with salt, as Paul says here. Again, there's a lot we can say here, but one of the things we can draw from this is that the good news of salvation is not meant to be tasteless and bland. It's supposed to be tasty and inviting. The Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to be presented with enthusiasm and excitement. It's not to be dull and boring. The person we're talking to must see the excitement in our eyes. You say, well, I'm not really that kind of a person. That's not true at all. I've seen young men stand outside the church quite often at the church and they're talking and they're talking about trucks favorite subject of young fellows or they're talking about hockey or they're talking about this police chase that they saw on youtube and how do they talk about that do they talk about it very boring and very bland no they're excited they're, the pitch of their voice goes up the, the, the light is gleaming out of their eyes. Their facial expressions uh, are meant to hold the expression or, or, the, or the, the, the attention of their listeners. They're using their hands. They're using their bodies to make their point. They're, they're excited. And so we can do it. Usually when, when they come to the end of the story, there's a burst of laughter that you hear among their listeners or knowing nods. It's true. And, and sometimes someone else throws in a story as well. You, the conversation continues. And so we have to use, we have these gifts. We just have to begin to use them when we speak about Jesus too. We have to make the gospel tasty. And so we should be asking the Holy Spirit to season our speech with salt. And in this way, by the Holy Spirit's help, we will know how we ought to answer each one. In other words, we will speak wisely. 
We will speak with discretion. We will speak with love and genuine concern. We will speak in humility. We will speak to a, to, to a sinner conscious of the grace of God in our own lives. Were it not for the, for the grace of God, I too would be just like this person. The, the principle we must live by is what Jesus taught, a soft answer turns away wrath. And so, for instance, if a person challenges us on, and, and this is, these are the kinds of things you're going to find yourself in conversation with when you talk to an unbeliever. They're going to talk about the truth of the Bible. They're going to say, well, the Bible is only written by men, so why are you so foolish to believe that? It's just a trick, a prank that somebody pulled long ago, and they have all you Christians believing that this is the Word of God. Or they'll, say, they'll challenge your thinking on the uniqueness of the Bible. You know, there's, there's the Quran and there's the Bhagavad Gita, and there's lots of this, you know, the Book of Mormon and all these different things out there. What makes you think you have the only truth? They'll challenge you on the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, even who God is or if there even is a God. And so if a person challenges us in these ways, even with a critical way, uh, attitude, we have to respond with patience and respect. Patience and respect. Our speech has to be seasoned with salt so that we may know how to answer each one. We had a speaker one time in Panoka who suggested that you answer these kinds of questions, these challenges by non-Christians with the simple question, what do you mean by that? And he explained it. He spent a long time elaborating on it, but I thought it was wonderful how he said that because you put the onus back on them and you get them to, they, they ha now have to examine their thoughts. They have to now explain exactly what they mean. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't believe in some old man in the sky in a long white robe with a long beard. Well, that's not what we believe. That's not what the Bible teaches, right? So you put it back on them and ask them to explain. And then hopefully, prayerfully, you have the opportunity to correct their incorrect view of Christianity or tell them what we really believe, what is really true, and why it's so important to believe this. And again, you know, we all get nervous about these kinds of conversations, but with the Spirit's help, we can speak words that are thought-provoking, that plants a seed, that draws the person closer and certainly not chases them away from Jesus. How do we do that? Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This has to stay with us and in our hearts. Jesus said that every branch that bears fruit, the Father prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so, what does that mean for us? It means that we need to be praying very hard for the words and the opportunities to speak of Jesus to outsiders. But the promise of Jesus here with this whole pruning business is that if we are faithful in doing this, according to the promise of Jesus, God the Father will make us better at it. We'll become even more fruitful. We just have to begin to make that initial step forward. Congregation, there's so much confusion in this day and age about Christianity, especially about religion. How God is to be worshipped. Who is God? What does He want from us? Why are we here? We need to get people back to the basics. And one of the main ways that we can do this in our day and age is by watching our behavior around them and not trying to adopt methods 
and the ways of the world to try to draw people in. It's very simple. You speak the message and you live the message. You know, here's the thing, okay, and I can say this personally as someone who came into the church later on in life, late in my 20s, having lived a very pagan life. Let me tell you something. The true seeker of God, the outsider who is really looking to change their lives, they don't care about how hip we are. They don't care how loud our music is and if we have a praise team or not, if we have drums and guitars and all that nonsense. They don't care how cool we are. They're looking for God's people to show godliness. They're looking for God's people to show kindness and love and that you are living what you believe and that you have comfort in what you believe. The, the true seeker, is eager to know if, we, if we're really what we say we are. Or are we hypocrites? Are we faking it? And so it's vital that we are learning more and more to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, making the most of every opportunity. The truth of our confession is evidenced by the difference seen in our conduct, in our behavior. When the world looks at us, they must see that Christ has renewed us and is renewing us. Godliness, mercy, kindness, humility, these are things that must be flowing from us in contrast to the wickedness, the selfishness, the pride, the covetousness and the, the lust of the world. The world sees enough of that. They don't need to see it from us as well. And so let us pray for spirit-given wisdom that we may all walk before those outside with urgency, concerned for their souls, while we still have the opportunity. Amen.